0: Welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churfus. It was International Coffee Day last week. But I'm not going to change my schedule just to be able to grab onto a fleeting hashtag. No way. I'm happy to wait a few days. And grab onto that hashtag late for a conversation with this man.
1: My name is Stuart McCook. I am a historian at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada. And my research focuses on the environmental history of coffee. Most recently, I've published a book called Coffee is Not Forever, which is a global history of the coffee leaf rust. Coffee leaf rust is uh, a fungus which uh, is native to equatorial Africa. You can think of it running from Western Africa uh, in Liberia through to the eastern part of Africa, uh, Kenya, Ethiopia, and places like that.
0: Of course, it didn't stay in Africa. When coffee went global, so eventually did coffee leaf rust. We'll get to that. But first, there's something we need to get out of the way right at the outset. Like many of the diseases that attack our favorite commodities, in the short term at least, coffee leaf rust is not a threat to your coffee.
1: Some of my very earliest media interviews on this about 10 years ago, and this is in Canada, and they're saying, well, you know, what is the meaning of this for Canadians? And the short answer is, well, not much, <laughs> right? Right. Um, but, but then I started to think about, well, what does that mean more generally? And, and really, you know, the burdens, the burdens of a lot of these diseases are borne almost exclusively by the producers uh, who are uh, economically and almost in every other respect, the most vulnerable people in this whole chain.
0: And that's definitely something to bear in mind. But back to Coffee Leaf Rust. The man who identified the fungus, the Reverend Michael Barclay, who also identified the cause of potato late blight, named it Himalaya vastatrix. Himalaya means half smooth, and it describes the shape of the spores. And vastatrix is devastating.
1: The interesting thing is it's not inherently devastating, uh, but it was given its name uh, at a moment when it became devastating. In the wild, it's, it's you know, a, a minor disease. You can think of it as, in some ways, in that context, like athlete's foot. It's irksome, but not, uh, not, not anywhere close to fatal or even particularly inconvenient. Um, but one of the things that, one of the big stories of the rust is that as people started to change the way they farmed coffee and they moved coffee to new environments, they Uh, unfortunately created uh, the situations in which this minor disease could could become much more severe.
0: How did it manifest itself to, as it were, Western coffee growers?
1: Well it first manifested itself in Ceylon uh, which in the mid 19th century was actually a coffee island. It's now of course famed for a tea island for being a tea island but uh, this is before that. What happens, the way the fungus begins, is it starts its life as a spore. You can think of it as like, you know, almost baking flour, a very, very fine particle. Uh, The spore lands on the underside of a leaf of the coffee tree, and in the presence of water droplets, it will germinate And it will penetrate the leaf tissue and essentially feed off the leaf tissue. Uh, A British biologist in the the early 20th century described these fungi as the vampires of the vegetable world. And I I kind of like that turn of phrase. And then when the the fungus kind of completes its life cycle, it sort of breaks out uh, and then releases hundreds of thousands of new spores, which then go on to, uh, uh, to infect adjacent plants. How this matters from a farmer's perspective is leaves that have um, many of these uh, lesions, they're orange rust-colored spots, uh, the leaves fall off prematurely. And the leaves, of course, are a major source of nutrients for the tree. So if the leaves fall off... Uh, the fruit doesn't develop at all. The fruit doesn't develop properly. But then there's also what are called secondary losses, which means that the the branches that are going to bear the next year's crops also don't develop fully. So there's kind of short-term losses and intermediate-term losses.
0: Can the tree actually recover?
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is this is one of the things that makes the disease or made the disease hard to read for farmers is... Even under sort of uh, in in intensive cultivation situations, what happens is the trees will bear very heavily one year, and then in part they're a little bit exhausted. Even healthy trees, I mean here, and what the rust did initially was it kind of amplified that cycle, so the troughs got lower. Uh, but then, if you looked at the kind of average amount of production from one season to the next in Ceylon, at least it. it it declined uh, fairly rapidly. And I will say, you know, that when you see a, a tree that has had a bad rust infestation, it looks really bad, because a bad infestation can 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 strip the tree almost entirely of its leaves and it looks dead. Um, but the next year it will sort of throw out a new set of leaves and start over again.
0: So what happened in, in Ceylon, in Sri Lanka?
1: Well, uh, this was. Nobody had had any experience with this before. Uh, What had happened was that coffee had managed to circulate globally through Yemen, and uh, the disease, for a while at least, remained contained on the African continent. People, most coffee growers, weren't even aware of it. Um, so this was this came as a real surprise to the growers of Ceylon, and uh, they were able to ride out the uh, epidemic a little bit through the 1870s, in part because coffee prices remained relatively high for growers, and in fact grew fairly rapidly during the 1870s. So even as they were losing production, in many cases their revenue was still going up. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they could kind of coexist with the disease they weren't necessarily happy about it but then in the 1880s as Brazilian production began to expand globally and coffee prices began to fall uh, coffee for for many farmers in Ceylon was no longer profitable they could they could they couldn't manage the rust and low prices together and so they you know, pretty much en masse uh, abandoned coffee for tea. And, And that's how Ceylon became the tea island we know today.
0: And you're quite clear that this is nothing to do with why the Brits drink tea rather than coffee. You know, the story is that that's what made the Brits drink tea.
1: It's it's such a beautiful story, and I, I really felt kind of bad <laughs> about <laughs> about blowing it up because it, it is a lovely story, and it's one I told myself when I started started teaching this. But uh, it it sort of it defies logic. I mean, Ceylon only became a major coffee producer in the eighteen forties, and uh, the British coffee drinking tradition is a lot older than that. Um, but also, uh, you know, if you just look at the evidence, Great Britain sourced its coffee from all around the world and Ceylon was only a small part of that. So wherever we're going to look for the Great British consumption switch from tea- coffee to tea, it's not you're not going to find it with the coffee rust in Ceylon.
0: So okay, uh, somehow rust got to Ceylon and, and combined with low prices devastated the industry there. But yeah. coffee, coffee, as you say, was already growing in Brazil. Did rust kind of follow coffee around? Did it, did it, did it threaten other coffee plantations, or was it restricted to Ceylon?
1: Uh, it, it remained restricted to Ceylon for a very short period of time, uh, but then within a few years had uh, reached the coffee farms of southern India, which were fairly significant, Um, and then by the 1870s and 1880s had reached the Dutch East Indies, and in particular, of course, the island of Java, uh, but also Sumatra, uh, which had been uh, up up until that point, uh, the Dutch East Indies was the world's, I think, third largest coffee producer, uh, and their Arabica farms were devastated on a fairly large scale. What had happened in part was that coffee farmers had been able to push Arabica cultivation at a certain point to its ecological limits, uh, both in terms of uh, temperature and humidity. In the Dutch East Indies, they grew a lot of Arabica at fairly low altitudes and wet environments, and those warm and wet environments were, were perfect, perfect for the fungus uh, to prosper. That's what uh, ultimately uh, led the the Dutch to switch to robusta.
0: Oh, because robusta is resilient.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Once they'd identified it as a fungus and worked out yeah. how it was being transmitted and how it was um, moving from plant to plant, country to country, how did the West respond? to the disease? Are there fungicides that can deal with it? Or is it... How, what's, what's the response?
1: So um, one, of the, one of the things that is useful to think about uh, when you're thinking about crop diseases is uh, I think we often focus on the fungus. Uh, and a disease is really a combination of three things. Um, so the pathogen, in this case the fungus, uh, the, a susceptible host... And then the environmental conditions, uh, and particularly the conditions of the farm, but also the larger environmental conditions. And so if you're going to control a disease, generally control methods have focused on one of those three things. And certainly in the late 19th and early 20th century, um, one of the ways of uh, controlling the rust was to use fungicides. Uh, This is the great, the 19th century, late 19th century is the great age of chemistry, um, chemistry really, really comes it's into its own as a discipline. And so there are all these new chemicals being developed, which make their ways out into the field. Uh, and certainly coffee planters in, in the Eastern Hemisphere were were experimenting with chemicals. And they could find chemicals that would basically coat the leaves with, with a, a copper sulfide, and that would prevent the fungus from germinating and penetrating the plants. But the challenge there is that fungicides require a lot of technology, a lot of labor, and basically a lot of money. And so in many cases, even though it was a technical solution, uh, the solution just wasn't economically viable for a lot of coffee farmers. Uh, unless you were sort of very, a very large farmer and very well capitalized.
0: So then you, may, you mentioned also the susceptible host and the environment. So the susceptible host thing is, is underpins some of the move to Robusta.
1: Correct, yeah. Um, and it uh, grows very well in precisely the warm and wet lowlands where Arabica had been most susceptible to the rust. The Dutch really promote its cultivation, and to a large extent, the coffee production in uh, in Java and Sumatra recovers on the basis of Robusta. And then Robusta spread to a lot of other areas as well as kind of a replacement for Arabica coffee. And, and in many respects, Robusta is fantastic. Sort of agronomically, it's resistant to the rust, it's good at low altitudes, it looks great. The only problem is that it's got more caffeine, for that matter. Uh, the only problem is it, it tastes bad, or at least the markets decided it tasted bad.
0: There is still a kind of snobbishness about Robusta, although people, I've heard people say you can get perfectly good Robustas.
1: I, I had an, I was in India earlier this year and I had an amazing cup of Robusta and it was smoky and complicated, and definitely not Arabica, but definitely a really good and really interesting cup of coffee.
0: Okay. Let's, let's get back to the environment, because this is, a, this is really an interesting one. One of the things you said at the outset was that rust likes humidity. It, it, it requires a wet leaf and what have you. And we've yep. got this thing about shade-grown coffee versus... I guess open-grown coffee, sun-grown coffee, yeah. and I would have thought that shade-grown coffee would be more susceptible to rust for that for the reasons that it doesn't get dried out by the sun quite so quickly. Is that an issue?
1: That that is. Uh, I mean, it is an issue. The 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 connections between uh, shade and rust are really really complicated. Um, And much ink has been spilled in the scientific literature on on exactly this question. But certainly, yeah, one of the things that can happen in a shaded environment is they can be more humid. Um, On the other hand, um, having, let's say, a more agroecologically complex landscape, so thinking not just about shade, but the the biological diversity, will also um, act to a certain extent as a barrier against the diffusion of the rust. So it's not simple because one of the things that makes sort of large monoculture farms so susceptible is that uh, if you've got a tree, an infected tree that is surrounded by thousands or tens of thousands of other genetically identical trees, you can think about it as is, is almost like, you know, nuclear fission or something like that. Like a single lesion releases 100,000 spores and then they sort of float through this coffee farm and infect 1,000 trees and, and it, it, it explodes geometrically very, very quickly. Whereas in a sort of more agrobiodiverse farm, the, the opportunities for the fungus to reproduce itself are not as great.
0: So far we've been talking mostly about um, the eastern hemisphere, but, but Brazil, Colombia, um, they're, they're developing huge coffee industries. Were they threatened by the rust? Were they wary of it?
1: Absolutely. Yes, they were. For a long time, the Americas, which by the late 19th century, um, produced most of the world's coffee. In fact, by I think 1885, Brazil produced about 80% of the world's coffee. Uh, the Americas had remained largely free of the rust and and wanted to remain so. Uh, but then in the after about World War II, as the rust started spreading through Central and Western Africa, they realized that they, the writing was on the wall. Uh, And indeed, the rust crossed over to Brazil in the 1970s uh, and then made its way through uh, Latin America in the 1970s and 1980s. And by this point, the global coffee industry was fairly heavily regulated and governments were, were heavily involved in coffee production and in coffee research. And so... Uh, It was often easier for farmers to get loans and technical support for things like fungicides to control the rust. Um, And then a lot of the governments also focused on the susceptible host part of the triangle, and breeders were working furiously to uh, develop uh, varieties of Arabica that were rust resistant.
0: You mentioned that it got into Brazil and then spread through um, South America, Latin America, Central America. They had a long time to prepare for it. What, how come it got away from them?
1: Because there's ultimately, because there's no way of stopping it, really. Fungi are, are, are kind of uh, almost inexorable. Um, they are carried by people. Uh, they can travel apparently thousands of kilometers Uh, on winds. And it was certainly conceivable that they could have been carried across the South Atlantic on winds from Angola over to Brazil. Um, So, uh, And then really, once it's rooted in an ecosystem, it's it's hard to get it out, uh, short of essentially eradicating all of the coffee.
0: But it didn't eradicate the coffee industry.
1: No, people... uh, There's a couple of things going on. So one is... um, Uh, Certainly in Latin America, one of the big responses, particularly in Brazil, Colombia, Costa Rica, and in pockets elsewhere, uh, Mexico, uh, was what they called technification. And so this is the move to uh, the intensively cultivated Green Revolution-style sun coffee uh, using high-yielding dwarf Arabicas, which means you could... Plant a lot more Arabicas, and these these coffees were still susceptible to the rust. But they were the the sort of economic logic behind technification was you produced so much more coffee that you could pay for the costs of chemical spraying and chemical fertilizers to manage the rust. The other thing that happened was that um, some landscapes in Latin America, some of the highlands of Brazil, particularly Minas Gerais. Uh, parts of Colombia and the highlands of Central America are high enough and cool enough that the rust is present but not a major problem because the kind of macro-environmental conditions, the climate, the weather, are kind of inimical to the rust. So you could coexist with it reasonably easily, or and farmers did, up until 10 years or so ago.
0: It's interesting you mention that because about 10 years or so ago, we started hearing this story that climate change was going to devastate coffee because mm-hmm. higher, cooler areas, well, they were still going to be higher, but cooler areas, drier areas were going to become warmer and and wetter. Yep. Has that happened?
1: Yes. Uh, I think it's starting to happen, and, and it's happening in, in kind of complicated ways and it manifests itself in in different ways. But, you know, at lower altitudes, um, I understand that farmers are in some cases abandoning Arabica in part just because the conditions aren't aren't good in general for cultivating Arabica. And so what you hear people talking about is Arabica moving up the mountainside as farmers abandon coffee production in lower areas uh, and then move up to higher altitudes. But beyond those kind of raw, sort of temperature things, the other the, one of the other less visible impacts of of climate change is its impact on diseases and pests. Um, one of the things that helps keep rust has helped historically keep rust in check in a lot of places is that a lot of the coffee lands have well marked dry seasons, uh, and what happens over the dry season is that you know a lot of the rust essentially dies off. Um, and so it helps keep the population of rust in control. But as rainfall patterns change, as the dry seasons are less well-marked, it means that uh, um, more of the rust, more of an inoc- inoculum su- survives from one season to the next. And uh, the other thing is, even during a growing season, a slightly warming temperature means that you can have several more generations of the rust reproduce and propagate over the course of a single growing season. And this, of course, is just one disease.
0: <laughs> well, let's, let's stick with the one disease, because one of the things that struck me about this particular campaign, and I've seen it coming in, in all sorts of forms and from all sorts of places that would like us to pay attention to climate change and that think maybe they'll, by threatening our favorite beverage um, they're going to manage that, is it, it doesn't actually seem to impact coffee drinkers the outbreaks of diseases there's still coffee there's still coffee on the shelves it's it's like it's like what you said about Ceylon right at the outset I mean it's a global market and prices may change and sources of supply may change but but we can afford it um so we keep drinking coffee it's not actually having any impact
1: um it not right now. I mean, I think there's, um, you know, part of the problem is that a lot of the outbreaks that I'm, I've i been describing have been limited to one geographical area. And in some ways, the big challenge of the global coffee industry since the last 120 years has been chronic global overproduction. And so shortfalls in one area can typically be made up with uh, excess production in other areas. Uh, The one thing I would say that, um, you know, as we look forward to the next 10 or 20 or 50 years is that uh, climate change is going to be hitting all of the coffee lands simultaneously. Uh, It might not be hitting them all with equal intensity and it might not be hitting them all in the same way. Um, But some of the forecasts about what climate change is going to do to coffee in general are somewhat alarming.
0: What that suggests to me is that um, tying climate change to the the cup of coffee with your breakfast possibly is not going to have much impact, but thinking about the long-term future for coffee, which it, it, when was the last coffee shortage? I mean, it just doesn't seem to be something that people can get hold of.
1: No, I mean, there, there have been uh, brief supply crises. Uh, I think last one I can think of was early 1950s, probably. Um, I think the one thing I would say is that um, for the people who really enjoy the high-quality specialty coffee... There, um, a lot of the world's finest coffees are perhaps ironically grown in some of the most ecologically fragile areas and the one most susceptible to a lot of the things I'm describing here. And those are places where substitutes are are harder to find. Um, so if you're just talking about commodity coffee, there's a lot of that produced all around the world. Um, but the the really, the world's best coffees, those are only grown in a handful of landscapes. So those specialty coffees,
0: which are um, something of an elite taste,
1: mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
0: those might suffer, as it were, disproportionately.
1: They may, yeah, uh, but there there is a lot of work to be done, and I suppose one of the lessons of, of the countries that have successfully managed the coffee rust and the places that have successfully managed the, the coffee rust is it takes collective effort. Um, it takes you know, states that are willing to invest in it. It takes uh, farmer associations that are willing to invest in it. Um, but uh, grappling with this problem is beyond, beyond the capacity of any individual farmer.
0: That's interesting. Um, As as a tangent, when the main market is geographically um, and ecologically distinct from the producing countries, what's the best way for them to contribute?
1: Um this is uh, this is a good question. I mean, one of the things of course, uh, that has been very popular in the last generation or so are, are certified coffees. Uh, and those offer a greater uh, uh, a, offer farmers uh, more of a living wage uh, and also also offer other different kinds of benefits. And I think those are ones that can, that can really help. But some of the other stuff is is a little bit more, uh, it's a little bit harder for consumers to, to really help. Yeah. Um, it involves uh, choices made by larger businesses or governments about uh, what kind of support they're willing to offer.
0: Stuart McCook, author of the award-winning book Coffee is Not Forever, A Global History of the Coffee Leaf Rust. Details in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. I've been having quite a run of coffee stories lately, and they're all gathered together on the website at eatthispodcast.com slash coffee. They include one on fair trade and other forms of coffee certification, which goes into the whole question of ensuring that the people who actually grow the coffee get a decent reward for their efforts. If you haven't heard it, you might find it thought-provoking. And if you enjoyed this or any other episode, please take a moment to rate and review it. It really helps other people find the podcast. My thanks to Stuart McCook and, as ever, to the people who support the show with a donation. They're the ones who make it possible for me to offer transcripts to everyone though not usually until a couple of days after the episode goes out. If that's important to you, be sure to follow at Eat on Twitter, because that's where I usually announce that the transcript is ready. That's it for now. One more cup of coffee before you go? I don't think so. It's getting late. From me, Jeremy Churfas, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye, and thanks for listening.